Now, if you've got your Bibles with you, grab your Bibles. I want to just read you the text we're going to be looking at today. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back there. You can feel free to go grab one. We want you to have your own Bible, or even if you've got it on one of these little, you know, new age fancy gizmos, you can, you can totally, uh, iPad, iPhone, whatever you have. The main thing is we just want you to have a Bible that you use, that you know. And so uh, if you don't have one, make sure you feel free to go get one. Um, and also, just real quickly, on your phone or, you know, all these smartphones for dumb people, um, you can get free Bible downloads if you don't have it. So I know somebody can help you do that. But let's, let's just read the text that we're going to be in today uh, that John wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit about 2,000 years ago. Let's read. Chapter 17 is where we are, John 17 and verse 6. John 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm not praying for them. I'm not, or excuse me, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Father, would you take the reading of your word? And Father, would you begin to cement it into our hearts? Would you give me the capacity to be able to speak, not my thoughts, not my words, but Father, this morning I want to speak on your behalf. And Father, then would you open ears and hearts, and would we be different people because of looking at your word today. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, now you can sit down. Now you can sit down. Well, as you know, for those of you that have been here, we've been going through the book of John. It's uh, been a little over a year that we've been looking at the book of John with a few different breaks in there. But we're at this point, finally, in the book of John where where Jesus is finalizing his ministry. He's just a few hours now before they're going to come and uh, they're going to take him away and begin the trial and eventually his execution, his fulfillment of who he is as the Son of God. And we know the very last thing he does before leaving the city, and this is where we left off last week in John 17, is that he prayed. Now, the unique thing that we talked about in this prayer that he had last week is that he was coming to the very end of it, and he says this statement to the Father. He says, the hour has come. 
Now, the thought that I wanted to get across to all of you last week, when it talks about this idea of the hours come, it was the hour of all hours up to that point. And probably what would have been at this point in Jesus' head, because in his humanity, just like us, whenever we hit these kind of key pivotal moments, key things then begin to flash through our minds as we relive all those different hours that have led to this unique hour. In other words, Jesus, who is there, who uniquely in the book of Colossians says all things were created by him and for him, he would have looked back to that time in which he and the Father and the Spirit and their their triune oneness came to bear now in all of creation and created the universe, created all living things upon this planet. And then finally that moment in which they created humanity, their special creation. And at the very end, God said, it is very good. But he also would have remembered that day finally when Adam and Eve took of the fruit and humanity careened and fell. But he would have also known within that that the day that the serpent deceived them, there was a promise on that very day that he and, and the Father and the Spirit made together in which they were going to redeem out and buy back a humanity. They were going to crush the head of that serpent at some point. And all of, the, all of then redemptive history from that point, Moses and Abraham and, and the tribe of Israel and David and the sacrificial system, all of it, all those hours after hours after hours was pointing to this very moment and when Jesus finally would be the fulfillment of all those hours in which finally Satan would be delivered that death blow and things would be changed radically because of what God's done. He was also thinking probably at that moment about the day finally when sin will be dealt away with, death will be dealt away with, and he will live then on this new creation, new heavens and new earth in which finally Jesus will reign amongst the humanity and we will be there with him, living at a time that will be inexpressible according to John or Revelation 20 through 22. He said the hours come. This is the thing in which God is doing. This is his story, his true story in which he's carrying things out. Our problem is as humans though, we seek to live our story just like Adam and Eve in which God is calling us to abandon our story and to begin to live for him and with him in what he's doing because we know the end of our story is death and destruction. The end of his story, according to the book of John, he says the reason that he came here, John 20, 30 through 31, is that we may have life and life beyond anything that we can imagine. So he's saying, abandon your story and live for mine. And that's the hour that he's come to. Now in that also, at that particular juncture where Jesus is praying, we know he's going to say a few key things. Look down in your Bibles. At verse 4 now, he's going to now kind of lay out for us this idea of why he came. Why is it that at this moment he's stopped and he's doing what he's doing? And in verse 4, he says to the Father, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I'm done. He basically had one thing left that he was still going to do as far as dying on behalf of humanity, being buried, uh, raised from the dead. There's still that reality to come, but he's saying, Father, I've completed the work that you've given me to do. He's standing there, and we talked about this, and I don't know if you remember the pictures, but the golden gate, and he's just stopped, and he's praying in front of all the men. And the thing that we talked about last week is he's laying out for them. He's letting them see these guys that he's praying with. He's praying out loud. He's letting them see the relationship between he and his father, between he and daddy. He's letting them in a little piece of his heart. 
And so last week we talked about this idea that the, the, the three things on his mind last week are this, this idea of glorifying God. He said, Father, glorify me. And he knew what that meant. Put me on display even by raising me up on the cross so that I might glorify you. Glorifying the Father was on his mind. He said also, Father, the eternal life of these ones that you've given me, that was also on his mind. And, and eternal life we talked about wasn't just anything, but it was knowing God. We talked about why it's so important that we spend time in the Word and not just know factual information, but also this, this, this information that's experiential, that we walk with God and know God, that that is truly the life that he's talking about, to know the creator of the universe. But the last thing we talked about, he said when he's laying out his heart, is, Father, I can't wait to come home. He knew what heaven was like next to the Father, and he's like, I've done my job, but let me tell you something, I can't wait to be back the way it was before. And so as he's laying out these realities of his heart, and he's laying out this idea, the completion of what he's done, we finally get to verse 6 where we're going to be today. And he's going to lay out for us the ways in which he had completed his job. Now, I just want you, I want to, want you to see this real quickly. Look at verse 6. How had he completed his job? He said, I have manifested your name. And it says, if you have the ESV, it says to the people, but it should actually be to these guys. He's not just praying about anybody at this point. He's now moved from praying about things between he and the Father. And now we're going to see his heart shift in which he's going to pray for these guys that are around him, these 11 that are still with him. Now this name thing we're going to talk about here a little bit, but he said, look, Father, I have come and I've revealed to them exactly who you are, your character, your attributes to these guys. And then look at verse 8. What else did he do? He said, not only has he manifested your name, but he said, I have given them the words that you gave me. I gave them the message. Father, you gave me the message to give to them, and I didn't shuck or jive around anything. I grabbed your message, and I told them exactly what they needed to hear. So when he says, I have finished my job, he meant I came and I did exactly what you asked me to do. Now in this, though, we see it's interesting. We see that what the Father was doing. Look at verse 6. Jesus came and manifested them, but now we're going to see this. He manifested them, look what he says, to the ones that you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me. Now we talked about this last week, that the amazing part about being a follower of Jesus Christ is that we are a unique love gift between the Father and the Son in this powerful way. The reason that nothing will ever be able to snatch us out of the Father's hand away from the Son is because we are special to him. Nothing will be able to do that. I oftentimes hear people, they want to argue with me about this whole idea of of a person being able to be an adopted kid and then an unadopted kid. That's impossible. The question is not that. The question is if you were actually ever an adopted kid of the king. Because once I'm an adopted kid of the king, now it relies not upon my capacity nor my ability, but upon the name of God himself. And he says, I ain't going to let go. Because you are a special gift between me and the son. But he also isn't done with that. Look at verse, uh, also 8. He says, Jesus said, I gave him the words, but uniquely they were the words that the Father gave to the Son. And look at the guy's response. Look at verse 6. They have kept your word. They know everything that you, verse 7, have given to me is from you. Verse 8, 
They have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. Verse 8, they have believed that you sent me. Jesus said, I came, I gave them the message, and these 11 guys stand in front of me right now. The mark that I know that they're truly one of yours is they believed the message, they've received it, and Father, they're still here. Now that is in spite of, in the book of John, here's what's so crazy about this. Some of Jesus' messages were so hard. John 6, man, he's preaching away, and you'd think, man, Jesus was a great evangelist. He must have, people must have followed him like crazy. John 6, he looks out at the crowd and goes, basically, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And everybody goes, huh? They scatter, and the only people left are the 12. They're kind of looking around like this, and Jesus goes, this is what Jesus says to him at the end. You going to leave too? Now, that's not in my head a good evangelistic message. But then Peter, out of nowhere, says this. Where else are we going to go? You got the words of life. Now, before we then look at Peter and pat him on the back and go, dang, Peter, you're smart. He really wasn't. He's like us. <laughs> See, in Matthew 16, Jesus is saying, you know, who do I, people say I am? And they're saying, oh, Elijah, John the Baptist. And all of a sudden, Peter, out of nowhere, goes, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus has to say to him, Peter, homie, Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. You would have never got that if my father hadn't told you. See, it's this idea in which, Daddy, I know which ones are yours because they're still with me. In spite of everything, they're with me. And so as he stands here with these guys, that becomes crucial. And then look at verse 9. We're learning more about them. He says, look, I'm praying for them I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they're yours. They're yours. Now, the word order here in the Greek is key. He, he would have said strongly. He would have emphasized. Actually, he wouldn't have put this idea first, I'm praying for them. In the Greek, it says, I'm not praying for the world here. Now, what that doesn't mean is this. We know from John 3.16 that God so loved the world. We also learn later on in, in John that not only does he love the world, but he's the savior of the entire world. So it's not as if Jesus is saying now, disregard the world. What he is saying is those that you've given me, Father, out of the world, they're special to me. I adore them. See, this week my kids drew pictures for me. Great pictures. I'm almost like ashamed to show you because your kids will feel so inadequate can't see them real well, but they came up to me, and they, they drew me pictures, and I was like, oh, wow, what'd you draw me pictures of? They said, oh, Daddy, we drew pictures of things that we like to do with you. Something, oh, go to the park, wrestle, you know, things like that, and I said, oh, what, Brianna, like, what, what do you like to do with Daddy? And she goes, Daddy, the favorite thing I like to do with you is I like to go to the very gates of hell called Chuck E. Cheese. She didn't really say that. <laughs> but in my head, I'm like, no, not there, baby. Not there. And she's got a little picture of Chucky up here, you know, and there they are playing games and getting all their tickets. And I'm like, oh, man. And so I'm thinking, okay, Josiah must be my good kid. And so I said, Josiah, what do you love to do with daddy? And he says, daddy, I love to get even closer to the gates of hell. I like to go to Disneyland. Now, 
what makes these pictures special? And I'm able to pull myself back and realize this artwork really ain't that good. But it's from my kid. Who put this thing together makes a difference on my value of it. And so this whole thing that Jesus is talking about when he says, I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for them. He's placing a unique value upon these ones that the Father has given to him. He adores them. But the thing that I love about these ones that I've given to him, he says, I've given to them, down in verse 10, you get there, and he's going to tell us a little bit about them, these guys, these ones that I've given him. See where it says this in verse 10? And I'm glorified in them. Now, of all the people to be glorified about, these guys are not the dudes that you're going to think I'm glorified in them. In other words, what he's saying is, Father, I'm getting ready to leave. He's going to say that in 10 and 11. And these are the guys that I'm going to leave to represent you. Now, let me tell you a little about these cats. They're a ragtag group of Galilean hicks that no one cared about. And Jesus says, Father, these losers are going to start my church. Now, I bring that up, and I did say the word losers because we're just like them. See, there's nothing more that God loves to do than to take what isn't and glorify himself by putting it on display. And if you don't believe me in this, think about a person like Noah. Noah was a dude that the way the world saw him was some weird, whacked out moron that didn't have a clue about what was going on. But yet it says when God looked down, he was the only man that was righteous on the entire planet. He saw the what? The heart. I think the other person, Abraham, he was a dude off in the land of Ur. I mean, anybody from Ur can't be too good of a place. An idolatrous man But what God looked on and saw was a man that when he called him to follow, it says he believed. But not only Abraham, you even think about guys like Joseph. Joseph was an egotistical teenager that his brothers sold into slavery who got accused of doing inappropriate things with his master's wife. And yet what God looked upon and saw was the man in which he was going to save his people and save the line of Jesus so that Jesus might come one day. One of my favorite characters out of the Bible is Samson. Here's Samson, the strongest man ever. He was this guy that that was a total idiot. He loved women. He caroused around in them. Finally, they learn why he's so strong. Cut his hair, lock him up. He's a sideshow for everyone there. But yet in one glorious moment when they had him put next to two pillars, he destroyed a whole group of people. And homeboy ends up in in the hall of fame in regards to faith in Hebrews 11. See, it goes on and on like this, that God loves to take those things that aren't and to shape them and use them then to do incredible things. That was Paul's point in 1 Corinthians. And so if you're sitting here today and you think in any way that somehow I'm somebody that God can never use, you are lying to yourself. This is who Jesus took and he started the church. Now, we're going to move into verse, in verse 11 now, the very middle of it. Now we're going to ask the question that we asked last week, Okay. Last week, we asked this key question, what was on the heart of Jesus? 
And so after explaining the Father and him and the people there, now all of a sudden we're going to see as he prays for these 11 guys. And by the way, as he prays for these 11 guys, because they're the ones that are going to start the church, much of that prayer is going to also apply to who we are as people. So you need to watch that, okay? So in verse 11, he's going to say this statement when you look down in there, and he says this, middle of verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name. He cries out and he uses this word keep to talk about what a shepherd would do as they would guard and protect the flock. Now what's going on inside of his head? I think what is so key here when he talks about this is, is the idea that he understands he's getting ready to leave. He's done his job. He's accomplished his task. He's watched out for these guys. And now in front of them, he's communicating with the Father and saying, now I have kept them. You're going to see this in verse 12. Now, Father, it's your job to keep them from the time in which I am going to now enter where I'm going to be crucified until the time the Holy Spirit comes. Father, guard them, protect them, watch out for them. Now he throws in something so key, and I told you I was going to get to this idea of in your name. Now in your name, it's what I alluded to when I talked about in the beginning, it means according to your character and according to your truthfulness and according to your faithfulness. Anytime we see this word name, it, it has a very Old Testament concept to it. And what it, it would have been much bigger than just an identifying word like a name from a crowd of people. When it talked about in your name, it means the whole nature and character of who you are. So like in Psalm 9 and Psalm 22, when he uses this idea of your name, what he means is, is everything about you, your faithfulness, your truthfulness. And so what he's saying is, is Father, keep them according to your promise that you said you were going to do when you gave them to me. Keep them in that name. It's like Moses when he was standing in front of the bush and he looks at the bush and he says, yeah, but who, whose name am I to say that I'm coming to tell them? And he says, you just tell them I am sent you. It was all the weight of God behind that. Father, keep them in that name. He wasn't only talking to God at this point. He understood that these guys were listening in. They were worried about Jesus leaving and he wanted them to get that that name that they're talking about, that name that the Jewish people would never say because it was a holy name, it was an other name. That name, he was looking at God and saying, you keep these guys in that name. He goes on in verse 12, look down there. Helps us understand it more, gives a little clarity. He says, when I was with them, I kept them safe and watched over them. In your name that you have given me. In other words, these guys that you've given me, I watched over, and not one of them was lost. These guys had no clue, but while they're chilling with Jesus, walking around doing their thing, Jesus was watching over them. In fact, at the very end, we're going to see this when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers come to them, and Jesus asked this question, Who are you seeking? And they said, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And in the Bible, it says they were blown backwards when this happened. And Jesus one more time says, who are you seeking? And again, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Why? To make sure that they took no one else but him. Even at that moment, he was saying, Father, I've lost none. These guys don't need to be on trial. I'm the one that you've sent. I'm the one that's been taking care of them. And now I'm handing them over to you. I think what's key here, when you especially get down to the next one, is that they also needed to understand that one would be lost. 
But the one that would be lost, it says, and it's a, it's a prophecy from Psalm 109, the one that would be lost was foretold that he would be lost. There would be this son of destruction. And so as he's speaking to the Father, he's saying to the Father, Father, activate everything in you to protect them. But the question is then, protect them from who or what? Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, look at this, but that you keep them from the evil one. Father, the protection that I ask is, is not that you keep them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Now, there's two times now in here that Jesus doesn't pray for certain things. He doesn't pray for the world, and he doesn't pray that we are uniquely kept out of the world. In our heads, the thing we have to realize is that God intends us to be in the world. Throughout Christianity, there's been these little groups of people that think the way that I'm going to be holy is I'm going to separate myself from the world and I'm going to go live kind of off in a cave or a monastery or a convent or, or some kind of a you know, Christian school or whatever it is that I, and again, I'm not bagging Christian schools. Please don't send me email. But it's just this idea in which though, it's weird ways in which we seek to think that we can be protected from the evil. Jesus never prayed that. He uniquely prayed that we would be protected from the evil one. Do you see that in there? He promised that he was going to leave them in the world for a purpose. And the purpose, the only thing that I can come to is that he's talking about here is that Jesus didn't ask them to remove them because if he removed them right then, if you think about it, we would be way better off in heaven right now if it was to leave us here so we could sing better music. Let me tell you, I've heard some of you sing I can't wait for your glorified voice. And, and if it was somehow to leave us here because we'd, we'd give better fellowship, no, why? He left us here because he said it way back in verse 11 and verse 10 that they might glorify me here. In other words, we have a job to do. So what does it mean that he protected them from the evil one? I love this. In the book of Job, if you ever have a chance to read it, we see God with Job, one of his that he loves, and how he uniquely protected him from the evil one. In some way and in some fashion, in some form, the angelic realm comes to present themselves before God. Satan is one of the angels. He comes and presents himself before God. And God looks down upon earth and sees his servant Job. And he looks at the evil one, Lucifer, Satan, and he says, Have you seen my servant Job? Now, some tells me if Job would have known about it this time, he would have been like, ain't nothing to see here. What about these two? What about my wife? You know, it's, just, it's just this idea like, what? Satan says, yeah, but you take everything away from him, and he'll curse you. And God says, go ahead. He begins to take everything away from him. The only thing he doesn't take away from him is a wife, and his wife keeps telling him, just curse God and die, Job. I mean, it's like, God, could you take her too? I mean, it's like, but it's this thing in which now you can do what? Anything, but you can't uniquely touch him. Finally, Satan comes back again, and he says, yeah, but touch him, and he will curse you. And he says, fine, go ahead and touch him, but you can't take his life. The idea here is, is that Satan, while he is a powerful being, does nothing that God doesn't allow him to do. Nothing. I remember when I first came to know Jesus Christ, I was reading the book, This Present Darkness. And if you've never read it by Frank Peretti, it freaks with your mind. And it's not one that I recommend, by the way. 
But I'm reading it, and it just talks about these demons and beady eyes and smoke and things hanging out places. And I'm reading it in a dining hall at a camp that I'm working at, and I have to cross this big wooded field, or wooded uh, forest, in which there's no lights. And so I finish reading the book, and I'm sitting there going, that was a good book. And all of a sudden, I start to walk back. And you know that feeling like I'm just walking through the woods, and it's like, you know, and I'm like walking through just like, (laughs) <laughs> and so I get back to the room, man, and I remember being there, and I walk in, and I had that, I know I, I had that look like I'd just seen a ghost, right? And the guy that's kind of the head counselor looks at me, he goes, what's wrong? I just finished this present darkness and walked through the woods, dude. <laughs> that ain't right. We should do that with the kids. They come to know Jesus. But I, I so that, you know, I'm just like, I get in there, and he looks at me, and he, all of a sudden, he sits down with me, and he begins to read to me who God is and who the evil one is. And he said, Todd, are you a child of God? And I said, yes. He said, therefore, you have the comfort that nothing can happen to you unless God allows it. Nothing. So we also see it in Luke that when, when Jesus is sitting there talking to Peter, all of a sudden he looks at Peter and he says, hey, Peter, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat. Now, on some levels, man, if I were Peter, I'd be like, well, what about John, man? I wish he'd sift John. He's but then in it, though, he says, but listen to me, Peter. When it's over, you will use that to be a means of encouragement to your friends. In other words, I'm going to take what Satan did, and I'm going to actually use it to glorify myself. Paul, in in 2 Corinthians 12, he has this thorn in the flesh given to him to keep him humble. And he cries out to God three times, God, would you please remove this this thorn in my flesh, this messenger from Satan? And God says, no. I'm going to leave it right there because I'm in control of even the demonic world. And I'm going to leave it there. And you're going to learn this amazing concept. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Why? God is in control of all things. This is the security that he's praying for for these guys. God, would you take who you are and just bring it to bear in these guys? Father, these are the ones that are going to build your church. Protect them. And let me just say to all of you, If you are someone in here who's a child of God, who's chosen to follow Jesus Christ, can I just tell you something? You are good. In Psalm 139, it says, God knows the day that we're born and the day that we die. I have never understood why Christians are so worried about the day that they die. God's got that in control. I mean, you wouldn't believe all the emails I've been getting lately about, you know, the the meteors coming to earth. What are we going to do? As if God's in heaven going, oh no, catch the meteor you kidding me? Worried about a cop that went loco for a little while. Worried about all these things. Do you understand something? There is nothing that is going to happen to you that is out of God's control. I found a couple quotes. I want to read it to you. Here's the first one. I hope. Look at this. Security is not the absence of danger but the presence of God, no matter the danger. That one's good. I wish I could meet Anonymous. He comes out with some crazy good ones sometimes. I'm like, dang, Anonymous. <laughs> Somebody's going to come up afterwards. Hey, my name's Anonymous. 
Another one that I found by Elizabeth Elliot, uh, her husband Jim Elliot was one who passed away. He said, she said this, where does your security lie? Is God your refuge, your hiding place, your stronghold, your shepherd, your counselor, your friend, your redeemer, your savior, your guide? If he is, you don't need to search any farther for security. That's what Jesus is praying right there. That's why he can unleash his people to go to the ends of the earth. That's why we have people going to Indonesia. That's why we have doing that. Because why? Because God, with God, we are safe and secure. That doesn't mean we're stupid. I get it. Somebody's going to go, yeah, but we could do stupid things. I get it. You could do stupid things. But in it, even in your stupidity, God never loses control. So that's the first thing. Now, off of that, though, he's going to lay something out in verse 11 that I think is key to where we're going. Look at verse 11, and then we're going to, we're going to work down to this next section. He says in there at the very end of it, the purpose for which he wants God to give them that safety and security is that they may be one even as we are one. In other words, the purpose that he wants them to do this is that, Father, we're about ready to start something here, and I need you to preserve them through all of my death, my burial, my resurrection, till the coming of the Holy Spirit, so that they can accomplish the work to which you've given to them. This is this idea that they may be one as we are one. Now, he's going to also lay it out. Look at verse 16. He's going to clarify this unity that, that those of us that are followers of Jesus have. People that are followers of Jesus are not of the world, it says, verse 16, just as I'm not of the world. Look at verse 14. I had given them your word. I've given them the truth of this, and the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. This identity of who we are that we have got to get in our heads if we are followers of Jesus our identity is not this world. Our identity is with Jesus alone. Now what he's going to now say, look down at verse 17. Because of this, the next thing on his heart is, is he's going to say, Father, sanctify them. Now this word sanctify, and I'll teach you a Greek word here because it's kind of a fun one to say. Ready? Hagiadzo. Isn't that fun? Hagiadzo. It means to be set apart. Now, the way we generally tend to use it is we tend to use it in a moral nature, which is definitely true. And one day, I looked outside and my son had this, except he was cleaning up the doggy poop with this. <laughs> what is this? Not a doggy doo-doo scooper. Now, before we could use this again... We had to do some major disinfection, if you know what I'm talking about. But the thing about this particular instrument is that when man designed it, he designed it for a specific use. Now, when we look at this word hagiadzo, or to be set apart, it's not just about being morally clean. That's an aspect of it. In other words, you didn't want me to scoop ice cream after it got used in my yard. It has to be clean, but the bigger thing on this is, is that it's set apart for a use. Now, I went into my wife's kitchen. I found some other things. Anybody know what this thing is? Anybody? Oh, uh-huh. It's not a pizza cutter. I learned that. Pasta. Whoever said pasta. I'm looking at this thing going... 
You know, I'm like, cool, back row, go on, baby. But it's just this thing in which I go, what's this for? And she goes, oh, it's to, it, it is for pastries. You use it to, to do some things with pastries to seal them off. And I'm like, okay, whatever. But this thing was also designed to be used in a specific way. It was set apart for use. But the other thing I found in her kitchen was this. <laughs> it also is set apart for a use. When the sink clogs, she calls me, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> really, she doesn't. I'm like, I don't know how to use this. But, she, but this is what now we use, right, to unclog the, dra- the drain. This idea that he's talking about now with sanctification is this, is that Father... They are not of this world. They're distinct. They're to be set apart. They are to be clean in a unique way. But Father, prep them to be used in a way that will blow their mind for your purposes. Father, get their eyes off of their world and their story, the thing in which they think they were designed for. And Father, instead, when I say sanctify them in truth, he's saying give them the idea of what you've created them for specifically. See, just like every human being has a different fingerprint, the idea, especially when you look at like 1 Corinthians 12, especially like in verses 7 and verses 11, is that when we came to know Jesus Christ, we were set apart and made distinct, just like a fingerprint to be used by God to do things that will blow our minds. He says, Father, do it in the truth. Anytime he connects it to that and we see this, he says, your word is truth. See, the reason that we have grow classes, the reason that we've unleashed Christian to be able to do that is, is because we believe your sanctification, your being set apart for what God has intended you to be used for on this planet. He says uniquely what that's about is, is the word now, it begins to fashion and shape you to prepare you for what God has for you. In 1 Peter 1, through 2, 3, it talks about this role of the word not only to bring us to Jesus, but then to grow us up in Jesus. And as it grows us up in Jesus, now all the rest of Peter is about this idea then of how God uses us for his purposes. Now the funniest thing in the world when I was looking around my kitchen was this cabinet called the China cabinet. I'm like looking at that thing, I'm staring at it. And have you ever thought about, don't tell my wife I said this, (laughs) how stupid a China cabinet is? I said, baby, why why do we have a china cabinet? And she said, for what? Special uses. How often is that? Like once a year? Let me just be clear with you. Y'all ain't china. God didn't design us to be used once a year. He designed us to be used every day. And he's crafted you and made you just like he intended. In fact, when you follow it through, when you get down to verse 18, he he begins to clarify this more. He says this, As you have now sent me into the world, what does he say? So I have put them in a china closet, Father. No. I have sent them into the world with their hair on fire to accomplish the purpose for which I've called them. And for their sake, I, and the word is the same word here, actually sanctify myself. I consecrate myself that they also might be consecrated or sanctified or set apart in truth. 
God, I'm going to uniquely go do my purpose that you've designed me for, which was you to be able to come to declare your word, to display who you are to the world, but then to go even all the way to the cross. Father, I set myself apart for those purposes so that all those that follow behind me will be able to do the same thing, to follow in the way that you've created them to accomplish their purposes. See, I love that. In this room, you don't have to accomplish the things that God's called me to accomplish. We have one grand purpose, which is the advancement of the gospel through his church. But God has designed every one of us to accomplish different things, each unique and different. And in fact, when you get to verse 13, he's even going to clarify that when we dive in with him, look at verse 13. He says, I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, look at this, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. See, the reason that some of you are downcast, downtrodden, poopy, is because you're living for your story, not God's story. Jesus never promised to give you joy in your story. In fact, he promises to make your story so miserable that you start to see how amazing his story truly is. Father, I'm doing this. I am going to play my role. No one else can play Jesus' role. Why? So that they can play their role. Christian, never, ever, ever forget. Not only are you not China but you're unique to God. No one else can do what you do. Isn't that crazy? But before you pat yourself on the back and go, dang, I'm good, you didn't make yourself that way. God did. Now, here's a couple take-home things before we go. Some of this stuff's from last week, and I wanted to kind of collide it together, but here's the first one that we have up there. As we learn to pray, we must be like Jesus, and we must pray for God's glory. Now, what we talked about with that, go to the next slide, is a desire to be put on display, and by the way, Jesus didn't do this, but even in failure. I find oftentimes Christians try to hide their failures. Why? The beauty about being honest is that then people get to see how the gospel was victorious in our failure. We are failures, but the gospel is never failing. It is always being victorious in how it does its work in transforming us. And so the way Christians try to hide themselves and pretend like we don't have problems, we do. We need the gospel terribly, but also the next part, we must pray for God's glory, is the willingness to pay the price of being displayed. Is that oftentimes, and it was what I talked about last week, we always say, oh, Father, I just want you to glorify me, and Father in heaven's going, Really? Did my son show you what I meant, what it meant to be glorified? Okay, that's where we're at on this one. Here's the second one from last week. We must pray for eternal life or true life. We talked about it. Eternal, eternality was more than time. That we would, one, grow in the knowledge of God, that we would begin to, to understand him, that we would open his word, spend time in his word, get to know the God of the universe, but also not that we would just have factual information. Man, we got to get away from this idea of just Bible studying ourselves to death. We need to learn. We need to be in the Word. But we got to get out there and learn the Word in real life. Man, I would say most people are afraid of sharing their faith because they don't ever share their faith. Man, you'll learn as you share your faith, actually it becomes less and less scary. Why? Because you realize that your job is just to be honest like Jesus. Just tell the truth. That's all sharing your faith is. 
And are people going to totally disregard you? The answer, yes. But we need to get out there and learn how to land it in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, and in the real world is what he's talking about. What's the next one? We must pray our true home would always stay in front of us. Go to the next slide. We have a job to do here. We don't bite our time. I think this is one of the biggest problems inside of Christian, evangelical Christianity today is that somehow we think, cool, we're just kind of biding our time till heaven gets here. No. There is no joy in sitting around playing spiritual tiddlywinks waiting for Jesus to come back. He's called us and promised us joy, not playing tiddlywinks, but joining him in what he's doing. But also, we need to think of heaven more and more, don't we? And I think one of our biggest problems is we get so comfortable here, we forget how incredible it's going to be one day with Jesus. If you want a good book to read on this, one is the Bible. Uh, the second one would be a, a book by uh, Randy Alcorn called Heaven. I highly encourage it. Great book just explaining where our future home is. Fourth one, we must pray that we would understand our value to the Father. Now, here's the key off of this. Overvaluing ourselves or thinking we're all that means that somehow in the back of our head, we think we deserve it. Let me let the cat out of the bag. We don't deserve anything other than hell. So therefore, what we get instead is this amazing thing called grace. But I've also seen people that come into my office that undervalue themselves, and they come in, and I'll be, you know, I'll be talking with them. I know, I'm just a worm. I'm worthless. I'm a nobody. That is a lie. No, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, are a kid of the Almighty King. Never forget that. Never, ever forget who your daddy is. He's the creator of the universe. Number five, we must pray that we would be distinct. What do we mean by that? We need to be different than, more different, it should be, we, we need to be more different than the world. Man, I sometimes feel like Christians take like 1 Corinthians 9, man, I just became all things to all people so that I might win some to Christ. And what they say by that is my life looks no different than the world. Our lives must look different than the world. The only way somebody wants to follow Jesus is if you actually give them alternative. The other one, though, is, is we can't exit the world. Man, I feel like sometimes when I see problems, especially parents, um, and I'm a parent and I see it myself, is that, man, our kids, we love them so much and we want to protect them. But let me just be honest with you. You can't protect them from the world unless you can protect them from themselves. Their biggest problem is not the world. Their biggest problem is them. And in a weird way, some of the ways we protect our kids from it is in ways in which we damage and we also don't teach them how to reach the world. Also, number six, we must pray we would stay on purpose, the purpose to which God's given us. You are distinct and created with purpose, but the only way to learn your purpose is to actually go out and join Jesus in what he's doing. So if you're somebody sitting here today, there's two realities. That number one, if you kind of don't know what God's called you to do, that's the job of the church. Our job is to help you learn what is your purpose, but you've got to actually desire to go do it. And second thing is, as you're out joining Jesus, you will find, you will learn the purpose for which God has created you, okay? Now here's the last thing. Can I just have everybody stand up? We're about ready to worship the Lord. And some of you are like, oh, gosh. The way some of you get up, I can't wait for heaven. Jeez. But just stand up with me.
If today you're a follower of Jesus Christ, no matter what happens between now and the time God calls you home, you're okay. God is in absolute control. But if you're also one of those that chooses to follow Jesus Christ, the thing I would encourage you is then to be sanctified. Go join Jesus in what he's doing. You will never find more joy than joining Jesus in what he's doing. If you don't know Jesus here today, you need to know Jesus. Because the only path that's left for you is not life and not hope and not joy. The only path that's left for you is an eternity apart from God. And so if you don't know Jesus today, I would love to talk with you. Somebody would love to meet with you and share with you how is it that you can know this Jesus that we've been talking about. But let me say it one last time. Those of you that know Jesus, we're good. I've read the end. He comes back. Jesus wins. Eternity with God. Shall we sing? Let's sing.